0: You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.ainrand.org.
1: My name is Ben Baer. Soon, I'm going to be joined by my colleague at ARI, Keith Lockich, And we are going to be discussing the topic and the question, are we all in this together? Uh, this is a catchphrase that has been uh, spread all around the culture at the time of this pandemic that we're dealing with. You've heard it from politicians. You've heard it from corporations. Their adver- advertisements. It's all over social media. Uh, And Ayn Rand thought that we should be very careful about our use of catchphrases because they often contained unscrutinized philosophical assumptions. So we are going to scrutinize this one today. And now, Keith, I'm going to hope you can join me. Are you out there, Keith? Hi, Ben. Hi. Hi, everybody. We're trying out some new things with graphics this week, so uh, bear with us if, if there should happen to be any. Uh, trouble that we're having.
2: I thought it looked good.
1: Good. So Keith, this phrase uh, are that that we're all in it together, like I said, is is everywhere. Um, and it's it's a, it's a phrase that's used in lots of different ways. Uh, some of them uh, seemingly better than others, but none of them are very clear in their meaning. And so I thought I would start out by uh, just uh, laying down a number of examples of how it's used and what we might be able to draw from this. Yeah. Uh, So sometimes I think this phrase is used in a really innocuous way that's just used to express a kind of reassurance uh, through a kind of solidarity. Uh, When one person says to another, hey, I'm dealing with the same kind of problems, uh, same kind of pain that you are, and so we need to understand that about each other. Uh, And I think there's a real point to this. Uh, People who are dealing with the same challenge uh, can commiserate about that fact. They can share tips uh, for getting out of the problem. And uh, I think that's especially true in life under this pandemic. Uh, you can talk with people and share tips and commiserate about how you're managing uh, to have, you know, to, uh, living at home all the time, uh, or in a different situation, having to work under riskier conditions. Either way, there's a lot of new challenges about balancing work and family, uh, being out of a job, finding You know, toilet paper uh, and other consumer goods or, you know, in the worst cases, dealing with significant loss, either financially or of, of, you know, of health or people that you love. But I
2: I just yeah, I mean, I I think this is it's the sort of this is the obvious way in which the phrase is true in that we're all, this, this, this virus is spreading around the world and everybody is subject to its effects. That, that's the sense in which it's obviously true that in, in that respect, we're all in this together.
1: Yeah, though even, even in this respect, when you push on it, it's not right. quite literally true. Right. Because it's... some people uh, are dealing with this in different ways. Some people have gotten sick, some people haven't. Some people have lost jobs, some people haven't. Some are living with family, others are alone by themselves. Uh, some people are better equipped. They have more savings to deal with it financially. They're healthier uh, psychologically. Uh, so even, uh, I think, in this most innocuous of uses, it's, it, it's still to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, and when it's offered in this spirit, uh, you have to be sensitive to that. Well, maybe this person that you're offering it to isn't quite in the same boat as you. Um, sometimes it can be used to urge certain kinds of just Really common sense cooperation, uh, obvious kinds of cooperation that everybody will agree there's a point to. So, uh, there's people need to work together to accomplish joint tasks when they share a goal. Uh, and this is obviously true, say, if you're employees who are working together at a business, especially when you're economically challenged, you're trying to keep the business running, maybe even growing. And that's true whether you're in a pandemic or not. It's true if you're members of a family who live together, who have to agree to certain rules of uh, interaction. And that's even more true under present circumstances uh, than uh, under ordinary circumstances. And more generally, uh, especially in a time of pandemic, there's, there are basic kind of obvious common sense sorts of cooperation that people can be encouraged to engage in. Wash your hands, cover your costs, Cough, maybe wear a mask if you have to go where there's a lot of people, etc. But even in these cases, even this use, you know, acknowledging that cooperation is a good thing. Uh, employees in a business or members of a family are not literally in a boat together. And if things get bad enough, either in your business or in your family, you, sh- you should leave. <laughs> and there are reasons why you might want to jump out of that boat. And even if you were in an actual boat, right, in an emergency situation, uh, it's in, in cases like that it's less clear that there's any kind of principle uh, that you should be sticking to. I mean, what if you're trapped in a boat with a psychotic killer? Uh, you're you, you want to get him out of that boat or get out yourself if you can. So uh, even here, this is not you know the catchphrase has to be uh, you can't treat it too literally. And then we especially get to the political use of this kind of catchphrase, where I have now seen it used to criticize people and policies that are allegedly uh, insufficiently quote unquote cooperative, uh, where the kind of cooperation so-called that's being encouraged is far from obviously good. just, just one example of this that I found was, um, as you know, of course, as, as I think everyone knows, there's uh, significant debate to be had about, to say the least, about the role of these statewide lockdowns, uh, whether they're the appropriate response to the pandemic that we're now dealing with. And there have been pretty legitimate questions people have raised about whether these are the best ways to deal with it, whether there's uh, more limited forms of government power that could be appropriately used to try to contain and quarantine people who are infected with this virus. But when people have, you know, for example, when Republicans, when certain politicians, including some Republicans and others raised questions about the lockdowns uh, and said, well, they might be hurting people more than they're helping, I noticed uh, an article in the Washington Post where Nancy Pelosi uh, was criticized, was, uh, criticized them, responded to their questions by, well, basically deflecting the questions by saying, well, we have to be scientific and this is something that we're all in together. We shouldn't be having a conversation about how many people it's okay to die just to open up even in urging people to be scientific, she didn't actually give any science to explain why things would be worse without the lockdowns. She didn't give any evidence that those who are worried about the lockdowns don't care about people dying. So she's in effect using this catchphrase to dismiss the need to have a debate about this completely unprecedented uh, uh, government policy. Uh, yeah. which you'd think would carry a pretty heavy burden, you'd have to shoulder a pretty heavy burden of proof to justify it.
2: I mean, I, I think this, so it, if the phrase is in, in <clears throat> you just talked about all the ways in which it's clearly not true, it, it, but it's being used to sort of put certain ideas across about how we should be responding. It strikes me that this is an instance of a, of a phrase from the Fountainhead that I read put in there, they don't bother to examine the folly, ask yourself what it accomplishes. So what does Pelosi's use of this phrase accomplish here? It basically creates a false alternative. Either you don't, either you, you know, you're either in favor of the lockdowns, which means either you're trying to stop the coronavirus or flatten the curve, which means you have to be pro lockdown in the way that they've executed them, or, or, or you're not and you just want people to die. The idea that there could be um, a more nuanced approach—that you know that people have been talking about since the since this thing began—with testing, contact tracing, not having to shut down the whole economy. The idea that you're against the lockdowns doesn't mean that you you just w- want to you know have people go to mass gatherings and let the virus spread willy-nilly. It's it's it's. Uh, you know, it's a false alternative that's being created. And I, I think what, what Pelosi's, you know, people who, who use this phrase to, to, to defend the lockdowns, what they really, and, and on the premise that, well, if you don't want the lockdowns, you just want people to die from coronavirus. I think what, what that uh, is that, 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 that to me, this, this shows a real, like a really callous disregard for the effect that the lockdowns are having on people's lives. The, the idea that it's lives versus the economies is, is completely false. The, the 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 fact that these are that this is having enormous economic impact means other effects on people's lives. So it's lives lost to coronavirus versus lives lost in all kinds of other ways. And people, you know, talked about all the different kinds of downstream impacts that will occur. Even just even just in the medical uh, arena, people are not going because of the lockdowns and because of the this the pandemic, people are not going in for routine checkups, cancer screenings, heart screenings, you know, how many how many lives will be lost as a result of that? Not because you know they won't be lost to coronavirus, they'll be lost for other health impacts because of the lockdowns. So I, I think it's 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 creating this um, it's creating this completely false false alternative.
1: Yeah, and and my my bigger point right now is not even one about the lockdowns. My point is just this phrase is being used to uh, silence debate on these crucial questions: how yeah. many lives are being lost one way versus how many are lost the other way. Should we be deciding policies based on how many lives are lost in just by You know, weighing numbers, is that the proper way for government to function? These are legitimate questions and they shouldn't be swept under the rugs, especially by use, uncritical use of a poorly defined catchphrase. Um, This all came out in a very clear way to me when I read an article recently in The Atlantic, which at first I thought was going to challenge. Uh, this catchphrase. The article was simply titled, We're Not All In It Together. It was by uh, someone named Eric Liu. It came out April 8th on, in the Atlantic. And what's interesting about this article is that even though uh, he, this is an example of someone who's nominally challenging uh, the uncritical use of the catchphrase, he's still basically accepting all of the usual assumptions that go into using it in the first place. What he's basically saying is we're not all in it together, but we should be. Uh, and it's revealing to look and see what it would mean for us to be all in it together, according to Liu. Uh, he says that to be in it together, we would need to uh, adopt a, what he calls a kind of civic character, which is all about mutuality, shared sacrifice, and putting service before the self. And then this next part was especially revealing. And I think it speaks to the same issue that you were raising earlier, Keith, about. Uh, uh, the, and that's weird. Okay, so I'm seeing a weird thing on my screen, but I think it's gone. Uh, it, it raises the same point you were making, Keith, about the uh, kind of false choice that we're being offered. He says, the pandemic is forcing Americans to choose very visibly whether to live like citizens or like sociopaths. Citizens see in systems, while sociopaths see only themselves. And he says a little more that I'll mention in a minute, but there is a perfect portrait of that false choice. Either you're a citizen who uh, believes in mutuality, shared sacrifice, and putting service for the self, or you're a sociopath. There's no... He's he's leaving out entirely the possibility of some kind of... uh, Voluntary mutual cooperation to mutual self-interest. So it's and,
2: collectivism or sociopathy,
1: <laughs> right? And that that's an incredible uh, oversimplifying of of the debate. And this again, here's another case where this uh, this phrase is being used to to put it over. Now, what what does it mean to you for us to avoid being a sociopath and to be a citizen? Well, when you look at what he recommends in concrete terms there's again a kind of mix, a packaging of very different things. Uh, On the one hand, it means practicing good hygiene, not spreading disease, the kinds of things I think most everybody will agree to. But then he works into that support for paid sick leave and a stronger public health system. And we shouldn't be hoarding our wealth and our privileges. And as with the other uses of the catchphrase, there's a lot of different things that are being grouped together now under this heading of what he regards as being a citizen who wants to uh, cooperate. Um, I mean, paid sick leave, it's its obviously a great thing to have it, but the, if you can get it, but it's its now being pushed on employers uh, to ma- that they be mandated to offer paid sick leave. So they're not being asked to volunteer to give it. And they're, they're, it's the proposals to mandate it for them at a time when they can't afford it, when it might drive them out of business. And so many of them are going out of business in the first place uh, because of the demands of this lockdown. Now, what's really interesting in this Liu article is while you might expect him at this point to say, well, so much the worse for the employers and their profit, they should just selflessly sacrifice. But what he goes on to say is to couch the whole proposal in slightly different terms. Uh, And it it actually came out right after that last passage that I read where he says, uh, citizens see see in systems while sociopaths only see themselves. He then went on to say, citizens defer short-term gratification for long-term benefit while sociopaths flip the sequence. Uh, And he also says, We need to see aid to the most vulnerable or disfavored, not just in terms of charity or altruism, but also as serving our systemic, societal and enlightened self-interest. So that is another function I think of this, we're all in it together catchphrase, that even though what he's actually demanding is that policies be forced on, for example, employers who can't actually afford it, where it might actually mean the death of these businesses where they're really actually being asked to sacrifice that's what these policies would mean but he he's then putting a fig leaf on it by saying well we're all in this together it'll really benefit our long-term enlightened self-interest somehow without actually explaining how that may be the case without actually explaining how mandating incredibly expensive employment policies against companies that can't afford it lest they go out of business, how that's somehow going to help them in the long run if they're no longer in business to actually benefit from it. I mean, there is such a thing as mutual self-interest between employers and employees. Uh, It's in an employer's interest that an employee is healthy enough to actually be productive and contribute to profit. But there's obviously only so much they can afford to this end, and so they have to pay a market price. Uh, if they want to be able to continue to profit, which is their reason for wanting to stay in business in the first place. But this, we're all in it together catchphrase, papers over all of these considerations and uh, and doesn't bother explaining to the people uh, that it wants to impose policies on why it's actually in their interest. It, uh, it doesn't leave it to them to decide. It, it quells discussion so that mandates can be imposed.
2: Yeah. I mean, what I find so interesting about you know, the use of this catchphrase and, and, and even more broadly, just a lot of the commentary about the pandemic. It, to me, it's raised a slightly different question from what we're discussing, but I think I can relate it and circle back to the, uh, the use of the catchphrase. But it's, it's the question of, um, does a crisis like this cause people to rethink their basic philosophical premises or not? You know, there, there, you do see people in the, in articles about on this issue, are we all in this together or, or other commentary on the pandemic, you do see people saying that this, this crisis sort of raises basic questions about the nature of society and how and the role of government and how society should be organized and basic moral questions. Um, So they're saying it's something, a a situation like this is an opportunity that can prompt us to rethink our basic premises. So there is a way in which it does do that. But what I found interesting in looking at commentary on the pandemic is, is for the most part, people don't fundamentally rethink their views uh, in the context of this kind of a crisis instead, what you see is people using their basic premises as their framework for interpreting and analyzing the events that we're seeing. And I think, and so that's what we're seeing with this Eric Liu piece. Um, On the one hand, it seems like there's, there's, we're raising basic questions about society and, um, and, and morality. But fundamentally, what you see emerging in his article he, he came into this article with the conventional understanding of what selfishness means, what altruism means, the standard views about morality that that people hold in our culture, and, and everything that he's saying about how we should be responding to the pandemic is an expression of those basic views that are not being questioned or challenged at all. Uh, so what I found, I found this interesting generally, you know, it, it's an, it's an expression of Rand's view of the role that philosophy plays in people's lives and how philosophy functions in our lives. Her view is, is that we all have a basic philosophy, whether it's implicit or explicit, whether we know it or not, we have a a set of fundamental premises that, that shape how we think about the world and how we, and that guide our choices and actions and our thinking. And it serves as a basic integrating framework for understanding the world. And so when when a situation like this happens, you know, this is when we use that framework to as as the mechanism for trying to understand what's going on. And to the extent that your philosophical, your basic philosophical ideas are wrong and out of touch with reality, the conclusions that you're going to come to about the pandemic in many ways are going to be wrong and out of touch with reality. And I think so. This Liu example that you're talking about, I think, shows that uh, shows that in spades. And another article that you linked to or that you pointed out is an article by Michael Sandel, a philosophy professor at Harvard, also with the title "Are We All in This Together?" And he actually, what's interesting, is he starts the article by basically saying, you know you know, that, that in, in confronting this pandemic, we're, we're look, we need medical and economic expertise, but we also need moral and political, this is prompting moral and political renewal. You know, he says we need to ask basic questions that we've evaded over the last decades. In other words, we need to take a hard look at the basic way we think about morality and society and politics, that sort of thing. But then when you read the rest of his article, you know, everything that he's saying about the pandemic, essentially he's interpreting through the lens of the philosophic premises that he came into the article and he came into this whole crisis with in the first place. Um, so I, I have some more things to say about that, but did you want to comment on that or?
1: I mean, it's it's worth pointing out that uh, the the fact that it's not like we ourselves are exempt from. Uh, this, the fact that you use your philosophic premises to analyze the situation that you're dealing with. We're doing that right now too. Right. But, uh, and you know, one of our philosophic premises is that you need to, uh, that knowledge takes work, that you should check your premises. And that, uh, that means don't use unscrutinized catchphrases to hang your policy proposals or proposals to reform all of society on. And uh, I think that's characteristic of that Sandell article.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what I'm part of what I'm responding to is it's in the Sandell article and in other articles on this topic where they say, now, now that we're in this crisis, this has finally revealed to us things that some of us have been arguing for a long time, but now it's really apparent, you know, so for example, the, uh, um, people, who, people who came into this issue as critics of, quote, wealth inequality. Now they're suddenly seeing in the pandemic all kinds of supposed evidence for how the real problem that we're facing, you know, is, is the inequalities in our society. And these are what's pulling our society apart and, and making it harder for us to deal with this situation. Um, you know, so the way Sandel puts it is that the pandemic has, quote, scrambled how we value people's, everyone's economic and social roles. So that, you know, this is the idea that now we finally see who the real essential workers are in society. You know, it's not the white collar people sitting in cushy offices. It's, it's medical professionals, it's grocery store workers, it's first responders, you know, truckers, delivery workers. Um, And, it, the, what, this, this, this is an interestingly mistaken point of view, <clears throat> because it's true. I mean, what what's true about it is that during an emergency situation, you know, the the relative importance of different roles is going to is going to be quote scrambled in a certain way. If your Absolutely. house is on fire, the firefighters are the most important human beings in the universe right at that moment, and you value them accordingly. And and you know, but but. If but what the conclusion that people like Sandel want to draw from this is what this what we should be concluding here is we've been wrong about our whole perspective about how society should be organized. So if we suddenly discover that when a house is on fire the firefighters are the most important people in the universe somehow the premise is that under nor- you know that that should change how we view firefighters in 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 normal circumstances. Um, so this is, this is essentially what Sandal is arguing in this article. He says, uh, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has suddenly forced us to reconsider what social and economic roles matter most. So this is an article by Michael Sandal from the New York Times, April 13th. The title is, Are We All In This Together, if you want to look for the reference. So the, the, the pandemic has suddenly forced us to reconsider what social and economic roles matter most. He points out that many of the essential workers uh, during the crisis are people performing jobs that don't require college degrees, you know, truckers, warehouse workers, uh, first responders, sanitation workers. Um, and, the, and he concludes by saying, um, beyond thanking them for their service, we should reconfigure our economy and, and society to accord such workers the compensation and recognition that reflects the true value of their contributions, not only in an emergency, but in our everyday lives.
1: Yeah, and, and even this, this point of his doesn't even work on its own terms because what about doctors, for God's sake? Uh, is, is, is he now gonna say, well, they're paid too much? Because they, they are paid a lot more than sanitation workers. Yeah. And earlier in the article, he, he, had, he, he had accused, he criticized the, the economic inequality in our society by saying it's a result of a belief in what he calls meritocracy. The more we believe that our success is our own doing, the less likely we are to feel indebted to and therefore obligated to our fellow citizens. And then part of what he's trying to tell the story about is that, well, it's the people without the degrees who are now the essential ones. They, they, haven't, uh, they don't have as much merit but we should remember that we only get the merit that we have because society gives it to us. So he's now here to tell us that the doctors and the nurses who studied uh, for years and you know gone to medical school for over a decade and worked twenty-hour shifts that that their talent wasn't anything of their own doing. Give me a break. Yeah,
2: yeah and just so so apart from the fact apart from this this idea that what, uh, how, how people's roles and the importance of their roles, how that might be reconfigured, you know, during a pandemic crisis, as opposed to during normal life. So that leaving, even leaving that aside, you know, there's a certain implication here, which is baked into the whole opposition to wealth inequality, that, that free markets um, don't Result in outcomes that reflect people's, you know, the, the value and importance of people's roles. And this is so this is a premise that that Sandel brings into this issue. And now it's not surprising that he's interpreting it through that lens. But the thing is, when when people when people um, make that kind of argument, what they ignore is the fact that the free market what the free market is, is the sum total of all the voluntary choices that people make in in, in their economic transactions. And what he's essentially saying is that leaving people free to choose for themselves how they're going to participate in the economy isn't producing the outcomes that I think are preferred. And so therefore, uh, we as a society need to, you know, Interfere with people's vol- I, you know, interfere with people's voluntary choices. In other words, you know, redistribute wealth uh, for, but you know, using the power of of, of government force. I mean, yeah, um,
1: yeah. And that's, I think, the the power of this of this catchphrase for ill in this case. Um, I think to to sum up some of the things that we've been saying. This catchphrase is used as what Ayn Rand called a package deal. It's what she called uh, the fallacy of failing to discriminate crucial differences. She, treating together as parts of a single whole, elements which differ essentially. And I think you see that because sometimes the phrase is used in a pretty innocuous way to you know encourage certain kinds of uh, commiseration and cooperation when it's clearly in our mutual interest to do so. But then it's also used to say well if you agree with that then you should also want to sacrifice yourself to other members of the group even when no one wants to explain to you why it's in your interest to do it both of these involve some kind of helping behavior of other members of a group but that's the superficial similarity there's a pretty fundamentally and and deep difference fundamental and deep difference between the types of helping we're talking about here between Uh, voluntary mutual assistance to mutual benefit and the involuntary kind where there's only a sacrifice of interests. And I think that especially in the current situation, using this catchphrase to propose those kinds of, uh, as you say, collectivistic policies is especially infuriating and stultifying because of the way that it's serving to cover how the current response, the predominant governmental response to 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 this pandemic has been lockdowns, which literally keep us apart from each other, which literally make the most important forms of actual mutually beneficial voluntary cooperation, impossible. We're literally being asked to uh, be locked down in our house, and the normal mode of human cooperation commerce is being shut down. And it's being shut down in a way where there's not even any end in sight because no clear goal has been articulated for these lockdowns. And so there's no goal for people to work mutually uh, together in order to achieve. So uh, to step back from all of this, I think the most important thing to emphasize, especially when you're looking at this catchphrase as a, as a having the function of uh, quelling debate and silencing uh, various forms of uh, conversations that need to be happening about what's the right way forward. Fundamentally speaking, the way none of us are ever in it all together is as. Thinkers no matter the situa- no, no matter what situation we're in, whether it's a situation of cooperation or anything else, what each of us needs to do in the space of our own mind is to think independently and to face the facts objectively and this means not going along with the party line, this means asking questions of what authorities say. Uh, it, it, it also means thinking about who are the authorities that can trust you can trust and who are the ones that you can't. So it's not dismissing authorities entirely, but it means thinking for yourself to decide who are the ones that are reliable. And it especially means not just uncritically absorbing, mind-numbing catchphrases that have all kinds of philosophic assumptions loaded into them that nobody's asking any questions about. Um I don't know, Keith, did you want to add anything more before we start to wrap up and ask for questions?
2: wrap up. So we have, I mean, we've got a few questions and we've only got about 10 minutes left here. So why don't we, uh, I think some of the questions that came in early on the Q&A module are ones that we've kind of addressed over the course of the discussion. So Gabe was asking about, is the phrase used for altruist collectivist to reinforce the idea of collective hardship and suffering?
1: Yes, that's something we talked talk. about. Yes. Yeah,
2: um, and Roger asks about uh, he's in Korea and says that people are arguing that Asian cultures have been better at fighting the virus because of collectivism, um, whereas Western countries are more individualistic. And and I, I don't think I don't think that's right. I think the political response in the U.S. has been a total mess. But I think you you see you saw people voluntarily taking the kinds of actions, staying at home and shelter, even before a lot of the lockdowns came into place. Once people understood what we were facing and what kinds of activities and actions would be required to flat so-called flatten the curve and curb and and um, try to minimize the spread, people were doing that voluntarily. I don't think it's
1: yeah I, and. It's, it's true that that it's probably true. I haven't studied it closely. It's probably true that Asian cultures are, are in certain ways less individualistic than Western cultures. But South Korea has been tremendously westernized over the last 50 years. It's become tremendously pro-science. And I think a big part of the reason why South Korea and Singapore and Taiwan uh, have had such an excellent response to this is because... First, they value science, and second, because they've dealt with this already. This happened 10 years ago with the SARS outbreak. They, they knew what it could do. Their governments became prepared to deal with it when it would happen again. And when it did, they, 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 they had a plan ready, and, they were, and they'd been listening to their scientists. Um, so I think it's much more because of their respect for uh, reason and science and having actually experienced this already that, that they've been able to deal with it better.
2: Um, there's a, yeah. uh,
1: Mary Aline asks, and she says, we seem to have gone from flatten the curve so hospital capacity won't be exceeded to no deaths are acceptable no matter what. I think that is a valid observation. And it speaks to the point that I made earlier about how there's really not been a clear goal articulated uh, for these lockdowns. And, that ca- and catchphrases like we're all in this together uh again they 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 numb us from asking the kinds of questions we need to be asking about what is the goal why were we doing this again was it did we want to be in this boat together indefinitely what's our plan for getting out of it yeah and so, yeah. And,
2: and, and as you pointed out i mean she she in that thing that you quote it says we need to listen to the scientists but this is a way in which we're not listening to the scientists because um, another person is pointing out an interview with a scientist and a doctor that you and I both know, Dr. Amish Adalja, who who was saying from the beginning and explaining and other other people in his field were explaining that the goal of the lockdowns, uh, sorry, the goal of flat, the idea of flattening the curve um, is to prevent short term spikes that could overwhelm hospital hospital capacity. It's not necessarily to prevent the total, to to minimize the total number of, of extreme cases and even the mortality from coronavirus, you know the the idea that if you flatten the curve, it doesn't necessarily reduce the area under the curve. It pushes it. It pushes, you know, some st- pushes the de- some of the deaths further out into the future, but it doesn't prevent them. Um, but that that scientific point seems to get lost in the kind of in the in the Pelosi type of attitude. Yeah.
1: Uh, and uh, Bradley says, the Pelosi example is a very common practice these days in politics and the culture wars. Do you think it is a form of psychologizing in that it puts emotionalism above reason? Well, psychologizing is a, is a technical term that Ayn Rand sometimes used. But I, I, mean, I do think that it's fair to say that uh, catchphrases like this are often used to attribute motives to people uh, without any basis. I mean, I mentioned that you know, she went from considering the fact that there are people who are critical of these lockdowns to attributing to them, oh, they don't care if, if, if people die. And uh, that's a false choice. And the catchphrase makes it seem like there are only two, those two choices, the choice between being a citizen and a sociopath as you as put it. Um, let's see, what else do we have here?
2: Mary also had an, another question. I think this is in relation to Michael Sandel's view that, that the pandemic makes us see that we need to be paying sanitation workers more. She says, is, is he talking about a form of price <laughs> gouging?
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting point. I mean, um, if if, uh, if you really did value people's services more in an emergency situation, you would think that they should be able to demand more for their services and yeah i mean if i think if sanitation workers wanted to go on strike to ask for a higher wage i would understand why they would want to do it but by the same token uh how about toilet paper manufacturers uh how about hand sanitizer manufacturers yeah how about the uh the farmers who are trying to sell their meat but uh they can't sell it directly uh to stores because of various forms of government regulation um again these are all questions that that nobody uh, is supposed to be asking right now. And yet yeah. they're all quite even, relevant.
2: You know, I mean, we've talked about this offline. I mean, even the, even the price arbitragers, the guy who drives around to all the stores in, you know, the backwoods of Kentucky and Alabama, buying up hand sanitizer and then tries to sell it on Amazon at a markup. You know, he's the people came down on him as though he were the devil, but, the reality is, he's taking something that's not accessible. He's taking these products that are sitting on shelves in in rural stores that nobody would have access to, and he's making them available. There's a way in which that's actually there is a valuable service that someone like that is performing. Um, and 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 the and the condemnation that he got is rests on this whole anti-price gouging, anti-profit, uh, anti-free market perspective.
1: And it's notable that the laws against price gouging allow someone to buy as much of an item at a very low price as they like because the person they're buying it from can't raise the price. But then they can't actually sell it at a higher price, which is a, which is a great way of encouraging the very kind of destructive hoarding where it doesn't look like we're all in it together. If you let them sell it, then they'd actually be performing a function in an economic service
2: yeah
1: um and just looking at the last of these questions i mean lester asked is this catchphrase another way of saying misery loves company uh do politicians use this to close our minds about the problem i mean misery loves company, there's a point to that phrase and it's, I think it's one of the more innocuous versions of the we're all in it together slogan that, that people who uh, are suffering have a mutual uh, interest in common to discuss and to strategize about. Um, and the problem with the way the catchphrase is used is, is that it's now in many ways not letting us actually get together to solve these problems. Um, you know, commerce being uh, the best example of this And that's not to say that you can just go back to ordinary commerce uh, as if nothing's happened. Obviously, people need to work together to figure out what are the safest ways uh, to reopen business. But getting together is the presupposition of all of that. Thanks again, everyone for joining us and we will see you next time.
0: Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.